Hey guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy. Welcome to Dubai Works. This week, I have the pleasure of being joined by a true gastronomic encyclopedia. Michael Ells is the Chief Culinary Officer of Jumeirah Group. This is a role he's occupied since 2018, having moved from the illustrious Michelin Group, uh, Michelin Restaurant and Hotel Guides, where he oversaw Europe, Asia and the Americas. The role at Jumeirah Group is uh, to oversee all the operations for F&B across hotels, resorts, for signature fine dining, family and more casual dining experiences as well. This week on the show, we'll talk about Foodie Kids, a new initiative by Jumeirah Group, uh, the role of Chief Culinary Officer and Dubai as a general uh, cuisine destination. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. We overcome some great to be here. difficulties, but great to have a conversation with you. Good morning. It, it's good morning. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, where are you based at the moment? Uh, I'm here in downtown Dubai. Okay, great. Working from home. It's a beautiful day. Have you been working from home since... Uh, for the last few months, or do you go in and out of offices and restaurants as well? Yes, we opened up our, um, of course, during the confinement, of course, we were all working from home, uh, but we've been gradually opening up our restaurants um, and uh, offices opened up uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so yeah, we're getting slowly, but surely getting back to normal, which of course is a great relief. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think everyone's been impressed with how, uh, you know, globally, how Dubai has kind of, uh, taken this challenge on and I'm sure it's the same with within the hospitality sector are people impressed with how Jumeirah group have handled the situation I would say that we are uh, really not only impressed but really uh, thrilled to see that uh, as we've been opening up uh, our guests have been uh, really coming back um, in large numbers so it's almost like you know uh, open and they will come so we've been very very uh, happy uh, to see that uh, uh, when we started with staycations, of course, with uh, uh, the locals, we had a uh, huge, uh, huge uh, and overwhelming uh, success and uh, uh, acceptance of our, our offer. And now that uh, Air, Airlift, uh, the, of course, Emirates is, is starting up quite a few more, more flights and we're starting to get guests coming in from from all over the place. So we're really quite, uh, quite happy and, and encouraged to see that trend. It's great to see. Yeah. And we've kind of experienced it as well. I think one of your establishments was one of the first places I ate in over the summer when uh, in Rockfish. And it was yes. just nice to be back and to and every, all the precautions were in place and the staff were so friendly. So it was nice to be back. I'm sure everyone's experiencing that as well. Well, it is. I, I think that's exactly right. I think people are are everyone's yearning to go back to normal. Obviously, we are uh, extremely vigilant in applying all of the protocols that uh, uh, both the, the world and the local uh, authorities have uh, come up with. Uh, that's very important to us. But given the fact that even before uh, the confinement, 
our our tables are the configuration of our restaurants was quite spaced apart so we really didn't have to change all that much other than obviously having the the sanitary protocols in terms of mask wearing and uh, uh hand cleansing uh and uh, the other things but in terms of actual the table spacing we were able to pretty much keep what we had so it was we were able to give people kind of a breadth of normality uh, even as early as this summer. And that I think uh, people were, were really nice. To, they were very happy to see that. Are there more challenges uh, on the different type of culinary offer? I, you know, I imagine with fine dining, uh, tables are spread apart. It's, you know, table service. But when it's, uh, when it's you know, buffet for breakfast in hotels, uh, there are more challenges there. And how have you kind of dealt with those? <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I mean, buffets really were, were not uh, viable uh, under the new uh, regulations uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, so we had to rethink how we did that. And we came up with the idea of doing mobile buffets. Wow. So we would actually, wow. instead of you going to the buffet, the buffet would come to you. And I think that was a uh, a great tribute to the creativity of our team. So we were able to actually, on um, uh, rolling carts, bring uh, a, a nice selection of the buffet uh, to all of our guests, and then they could choose at the table from the buffet cart. So instead of them getting up to the buffet, the buffet came to them. And I think that was something that uh, our guests find, found uh, very, very uh, attractive. Interesting. Sounds like it would work well. I think I need to stay go on a staycation with Jamera Group. I, I went into a hotel in Europe recently and uh, at the buffet, they handed me a plastic bag to put on my hands. Uh, that, and I said, why isn't it a glove? And they said, oh, people's hand sizes are different. And I literally couldn't put the food onto my plate. Everything fell everywhere. So some, yeah. some measures work. And, and gladly, uh, you guys have figured yes. something out and some don't. <laughs> um, that's great. Yeah. So there's other new initiatives. Uh, can you explain a little bit about Foodie Kids? Is this something, is this... Um, uh, uh, you know, a, a COVID initiative that came up? Did you have more time to plan new initiatives and things like that? And what does it involve? Actually, this is really part of our ongoing uh, work in, in understanding uh, what our guests want uh, in, at least from my part of the business, from what do our guests want in the food and beverage uh, experience when they come? And, uh, you know, this is our CEO, Jose Silva, um, who I've, I've known for, for several years now, even before I joined the group, uh, Mr. Silva has a vision of elevating the brand with three key pillars. And those pillars are uh, design, interior uh, architecture, interior design, uh, and visuals uh, that are unique and compelling, uh, of, uh, also seamless uh, service uh, that is uh, uh, so good you don't even know you're being served. And the final uh, pillar, in, uh, one which is, of course, close to my heart, is uh, elevating the dining experience to something that's unique and memorable. Mm. So as uh, I, and with all, all, of course, all of our teams, we, we delve into what we can do to really elevate and make those experiences unique and, and memorable. Uh, we, we base it on research as well. So we did some, some extensive research and interviewed uh, almost 6,000 families uh, from our key markets uh, to find out what it is that they really want, uh, or what's missing, if you will, or what what they like, what they don't like, and what they what is missing in terms of the experiences that we offer when they are coming to stay with us, mm. uh, or or anywhere else. So what 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 can we do to to entice them to come and stay with us? And one of the things that this uh, research really opened our eyes. One of the things that really jumped out 
at us was the fact that uh, as many of our guests are families and come with children, uh, one of the over half of the family said that uh, they are very concerned when they're on holiday that their children will not be eating properly. And so that was a main concern. And we, we, looked, we looked at it a little bit more closely and we found out that over three quarters of the families felt that hotels and restaurants, sorry, restaurants in hotels were not providing uh, adequate uh, selection in terms of healthier or, or more tasty, fun, but also, uh, I mean, healthier meals for the children. Mm. And the vast majority said that if, if they were to find a hotel that provided uh, better options for their children, more nutritious, uh, healthier options, but also fun options, that would be a key deciding factor for them wow. when deciding where to go. So we obviously realizing that, and as a father of an 11-year-old boy, uh, I can tell you from experience, it's unrealistic to expect children to, uh, you know, jump into uh, eating a plate of carrots, broccoli, and Brussels sprouts. Mm -hmm. uh, that, generally speaking, will happen. So we, we really needed to make, uh, come up with some ideas that were both attractive, fun, um, and we wanted to make it interactive, but also healthier for the children. And working with, uh, so we did that by the, I mean, kind of, as they say, the hard way by actually taking children into our kitchens uh, and taking the, you know, the, the, the profile of the kids that come with the families yeah. and working with our chefs, ask the kids actually what they want, what they like, what they don't like, um, and, and kind of came up with some ideas, I think that, and we've as shown has been, has been actually very, very successful uh, and, and exciting for uh, the, both the kids and the parents. Okay, great. So the Foodie Kids is a menu selection, uh, and is this a sort of a crowdsourced way of collaborating with kids to create a, a unique menu offering? We, what we did was we uh, we wanted to take the we take the you know the regular children's menu. I mean, obviously, uh, the idea is we want to give our guests choice when they come, so we don't want to impose things. But uh, so the I mean, the classic things that are we found that when children are going into a restaurant, certainly there's the classics like there's pizza, uh, there's burgers, uh, there's fish and chips, there's, fish, there's spaghetti bolognese, yeah. uh, there's club sandwiches. Those, they're those classics that you find all over fish the world. Fingers and things so, like that, yeah. Exactly, so the idea was that, it, so the idea was, you know, we don't necessarily wanna take those away because those are things that uh, the kids like, uh, but you know, how can we make them healthier? Uh, how can we make them fun? How can we make them interactive? So mm. for example, we took a uh, pizza margarita. So we have pizza margarita on our menu, but we also have the kiddie, foodie kids pizza margarita, which is using whole wheat uh, flour uh, for the, the pizza dough. It's using organic slow roasted tomatoes that are low in salt and low fat mozzarella. So we've come up with a margarita pizza that kids will recognize, kids will like, but it's also healthier. And I think that gives uh, the parents a certain amount of comfort. Uh, then we took, a, for example, a classic uh, chef salad. Uh, with the, for the kitty, the foodie kids chef salad, we lay the ingredients out on a plate for the children themselves to decide what they want. So if they want some, uh, the chicken slices are there in front of them, the veal bacon is there, the celery sticks, the tomato slices, uh, the lettuce, uh, and the avocado slices. So the children can actually build the salad themselves mm. and they can put the dressing on themselves. And we find that when children are doing it when they're actively participating mm. in making their food it they it's kind of they they are their, their own creation they're much more motivated to eat their own creation than if it's just put in front of them yeah. um and then we take dishes like um for example a spaghetti bolognese we use luminacci uh, pasta which are like little elbow macaroni and we use um, low-fat uh, beef and uh 
uh, low salt tomato sauce, uh, organic tomatoes. And we, you know, we realize that children want to have food that they recognize, food that's fun, but it's also healthier. We also did for dessert, we have a we called a, 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 a mess me up, kind of like a take on the mess, uh, mess. Uh, in English schools, uh, which uh, is a meringue with uh, some yogurt mousse and fresh strawberries. So yeah. kids can take that and we give them a little mallet and they can smash the meringue and break it up. Um, and then we have uh, what we call the watermelon pizza, which is actually a slice of pizza that, that we put uh, a light mascarpone cream on with fresh berries and fresh almonds. Um, and so it's kind of a, 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 a wink at pizza for dessert. So these are just some of the ideas that we've come up with with our chefs and with the kids input uh, to deliver healthier and fun uh, meals for our guests and their children. Interesting. Uh, it sounds like that type of research could be applied in other places where kids eat as well, maybe homeschool and other restaurants, but it's great that you've done that and applied it to your places. Is that for the all the hotels or for the, the fine dining as well? Or how does that work? Absolutely. This is uh, this was the, the initial pilot project was launched at our Jumeirah Beach Hotel um, on uh, the, the beautiful beach. I think what, the, the, the best beach in in, uh, in Dubai. Uh, I think we have uh, all of our beach hotels beach are on that is. beach. Uh, we have one challenge. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. We we're, we're, we don't want to be immodest, but we think realistically. <laughs> We're privileged in having that, that fantastic beach. So yeah. we've launched it in Jumeirah Beach Hotel um, in both our Down Anchor uh, uh, gastro pub restaurant, uh, as well as our beach and pool bars at restaurants. Uh, it is going to be progressively rolled out in all of our venues so that the children's options will be available uh, in uh, eventually all of our restaurants. So we, we do have, uh, as I said earlier, a significant number of guests that come with children. And we wanna make sure that uh, in uh, eventually all of the restaurants, so our guests can come, whatever restaurant that the guests come to with their children, they will have at least several options from the foodie kids available to them. And that will be progressively rolled out over the autumn. And we do now have a promotion at Jumeirah Beach Hotel until the end of the month where uh, all kids under 12 eat free. So uh, wow. when uh, getting a, 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 a the half board option uh, at Jumeirah Beach Hotel for so for uh, people who want to come and do a staycation with us, uh, I Amazing. think that's a very attractive offer, and it gives the, the yeah the, the kids a chance to eat free. So we're uh, we're very happy with that. That's a good offer. Interesting. How many, Michael? How many uh, establishments do you oversee across the Jumeirah Group? How many foods, eateries, and uh, do you oversee? Is it uh, overall? Well, here in Dubai, um, I spend you know most of my time here in Dubai. Um, we do have, we currently have twenty four hotels around the world mm. that are uh, operate under the Jumeirah uh, brand. Um, I do visit those uh, most of them regularly. Uh, although uh, there's no doubt that uh, being based here in Dubai and having the core of our activity here in Dubai, uh, just by nature, I spend more time here. So we currently have um, when we're, once we're up and running full out, we'll have just over 60 uh, uh, food and beverage uh, outlets, as we call them, um, or food and beverage areas where food and beverage are served, and that ranges. For, and that's something that's very important to us. I think Mr. Silva's one of Mr. Silva's goals. Uh, my boss and our F&B team is to really, uh, it, when we're going to be elevating the food and beverage experience uh, to uh, what we like to think uh, world-class levels, it has to be everywhere. So whether you're in a lobby lounge, whether you're in our pool or beach uh, restaurant, uh, whether you're in our all-day dining or okay. one of our fine dining restaurants, uh, or, or even in-room dining, room service, we want 
all of those experiences to be beyond expectation and memorable. So uh, it even gets down to things like what Mr. Silva calls the amazing basics. If you go into any um, lobby lounge of a hotel, uh, international hotel around the world, you'll always find a few of the same basic menu items like a Caesar salad or a Niçoise salad. You'll find a cheeseburger, you'll find a club sandwich, mm. you'll find a spaghetti bolognese, a chicken Caesar salad. These are the staples that whether you're in Beijing, Dubai, New York, or Paris, uh, in the lobby lounge uh, or, or on the room service manual, you'll find those staples. Um, what we want to do is we want to make sure that the club sandwich, for example, that you order uh, off of our menu will ruin all future club sandwiches you, that you eat because our club sandwich will be so good. So we really want to set the bar so high that uh, you will. we have memorable food wherever it is. Whatever, whatever you come into contact um, on our menus will be dishes that you will remember. Uh, and that is... Uh, it's easy to say, but it's actually quite hard to do because when you're making literally thousands of club sandwiches a day across dozens of different restaurants yeah. or food and beverage outlets, uh, to make sure you have that consistent quality throughout that the chicken is cut the right thickness and, and is served at the right temperature yeah. and, and the tomatoes are ripe and the bread is properly toasted. And there's just, it's just a, a many, many different details. So we have very elaborate manuals and videos and pictorials to make sure that both in the cooking, the, the, the presentation, and the, the cooking, the preparation, the presentation, and the serving of those dishes is uh, completely uh, mastered uh, wow. because it's uh, all about the detail. So interesting. You take me back to when I was younger, I had a job in a hotel, uh, different jobs, night porter behind a bar, and tourists would come, and I would go from the bar into the kitchen and make a club sandwich that was not really you know <laughs> it was in a, it was a club sandwich yeah but <laughs> and i just remember how sloppy it was and the plastic thing and the chef made it maybe two days before a day before and i would come back out and i'd be embarrassed serving it but uh, you know and i think that's a quality thing and i get you know historically the jamera group has a really good reputation on hospitality and and culinary um, and there seems to be a new focus with your role as chief culinary officer and with mr jose silva's um uh, impetus and, and stress on, on this service, but at what point does it become uh, the business angle to it? Are you are you um, an F and B business or are you, are you a, a hotel business? Are are they the same thing? That's a very good question. Um, obviously, the 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 restaurant space, the restaurant activity within a hotel. Um, is uh, often significantly different than it is to an outside freestanding restaurant. Um, one of our goals is to uh, attract uh, outside guests. Outside, we obviously have to cater to our hotel guests. We we believe, and Mr. Silva believes, that our ability to provide outstanding and memorable, unique dining experiences is a competitive advantage yeah. for our hotels. Uh, you know, anybody can build. Uh, a bigger room, you know, I mean, anybody with who's building a hotel, you can just say, oh, we're going to make our, our rooms are going to be 50 square meters, or ours are 60 square meters, ours are 70 square meters. Mm -hmm. So you can always have an arms race, if you will, in terms of who's got the biggest room. Uh, you know, there's the pools, there's the interior design. But in terms of creating really great food, great food experiences, that's much more difficult because it really requires, well, it requires a couple of things. It requires a talent. And that's where one of my roles, key roles has been in my seven years as head of the World Worldwide Head of the Michelin Guides. I obviously developed deep and broad contacts 
in the, the global culinary world. So that enabled me to pick up my phone and make uh, numerous calls to chefs I knew from around the world who were you know, interested in coming and joining us on this, this culinary adventure uh, that Mr. Silva is, is leading. So that was one thing. So we brought in the talent. Then we had to have the ambition. And that's something that, you know, one of the things that, that Jose tasked me with was to really create a, a, a culture of culinary excellence. Now, creating a culture of culinary excellence is easy to say, but it's actually quite difficult to do because that means having inculcating everybody from anybody from the kitchen, uh, stewards, uh, prep cooks, uh, line cooks, sous chefs, our executive chefs, everybody, our suppliers, everybody throughout the supply chain, everyone throughout the kitchen environment needs to understand that it's all about detail. It's all about rigor. It's about passion. It's about innovation. We want our chefs to be creative, but within certain guidelines. So it's taken, you know, a significant amount of time mm. to build that. But I think when you were, and I try to spend as much as I time as I can, not in my office, but in the actual kitchens, because that's in our organization, that's where the value is created. It's behind, it's behind the stove. It's in the kitchens. Um, and it's, been a really uh, an absolutely thrilling and, and tremendously rewarding experience wow i wanted to ask a question because i can't have an interview with you and not ask about michelin guide but just touching yeah. on some interesting points there um i was going to ask about choosing a, a cato a, a concept that you create versus bringing in an inter international brand and i think you know sure. you have chefs like christian goya and chef roberto yeah. so yeah. you kind of explain that you can bring the talent because of your your contacts and and yeah. that, that, that's plausible. It's easy to understand. But in the Dubai context and, you know, bringing these talents in, is that attractive to them? Are they coming and do they see Dubai as a culinary hub now? That's a great question as well. I think that there's there's a there's a there's two different ways that you can approach it. And um, I, I won't it's it's it's, it's a very it's a, it's a personal disorder. It's a strategic choice on the part of the hotels involved on what they want to do. One option is to bring a well-known chef, a celebrity chef, a branded chef who has, uh, you know, a footprint in one or many countries and bring them in. Often the chef, the, the name chef, the brand name chef is actually not in the kitchen, of course. He's running his empire and many of these brand name chefs, they're very good chefs. Many of them haven't touched a saucepan in many years, but they have teams and they're able to do that. And that's one approach and that's something that we that's that many uh, restaurant many hotels have done successfully um, mr silva and i we don't we don't think that that's not something that we want to do we want to bring in the the chefs who often the, the the sous chefs or the executive chefs that often worked in these brand name under these brand name chefs who are tremendously talented and give them free reign in the kitchen with obviously some guidelines and let them express themselves so this is a chance we've given our chefs the chance to come in from their often Michelin starred backgrounds. Obviously they're not the name brand chefs, but they've been working just under uh, you know, the, the, those, those chefs um, and give them a chance to really express their own creativity, their, their innovation, their passion for what they do and let them develop their own cuisine. So that ability is I think something that chefs have been very, very happy with. Um, and we've been very, we've been, I think, very, quite successful. So whether it's taking a restaurant like Rockfish, which has been around for a number of years, or mm -hmm. Shimmers on the beach, uh, bringing in different chefs and letting them take the same concept and evolve it according to what their talents and their, their obviously within a framework, you know, uh, Rockfish is always going to be, or it is currently a, an Italian Mediterranean flavored seafood restaurant. Shimmers, of course, is a Greek Mediterranean restaurant. So we keep those uh, themes and we, we yeah. let the chefs kind of yeah. express themselves or coming up with a completely new concept 
like Keito, which is this Peruvian, you know, Japanese, uh, Peruvian Mike cuisine with uh, uh, our Argentinian Japanese chef, uh, Christian Goya, or Sal, our latest edition, uh, yeah. our, our, our Southern Mediterranean Iberian Peninsula uh, seafood restaurant, yeah. uh, or, uh, you know, a, a restaurant like French Riviera, which is a pop-up we have now in, <clears throat> pardon, in, 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 um, in Alcacer, which is really a mix of, uh, of Saint-Tropez and the uh, uh, Capri uh, uh, type of a, a restaurant that uh, we think gives people uh, a, a, a Riviera experience. So um, we we we're having we're working hard, but we're also having great fun. And I think that uh, the results have shown that uh, uh, our, our guests are are really thrilled to be able to find these different dining options. And many of them, yeah, I'm sure. And yeah, I think empowering talent is a, a trend that people can resonate across industry. It seems to be yeah. what you're doing well. Uh, and from your experience, Michael, working across different regions and, and the culinary world, and my my mum is a cordon bleu trained chef, and she oh. will. Um, I have to ask: Is is France still the culinary leaders, given the innovation uh, in England, the US, and Spain, or Asia, in your view? I think um, I know the Cordon Bleu, by the way, very well. I know the uh, the owners, the the, 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 the Cointreau family, um, and I've actually done some things with them. <clears throat> very good uh, training. Um, I think if you look, and and I, I trained as a chef in France, you know, almost forty years ago. So, and if I look back, especially the last two decades, let's two, let's say the last. 20, 25 years, there have been a, a huge revolution um, around the world. I think in my experience, um, most chefs from around the world and, and having been at the Michelin Guide, I've visited over 30 different countries uh, and meeting the chef community. I think most chefs around the world still look to a certain degree to France mm. as kind of the mothership of, the, of, of, of technique, of product knowledge, of, uh, of real uh, you know, sauce making, um, the real elaborate technical approach to cuisine that has made French fine dining uh, unparalleled around the world. But over the years, and I think many, if you look around the world in, in great kitchens around the world, many of the chefs or sous chefs or commis have, 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 have at one point worked in France. So it's very much a, a desire on the part of many chefs to want to go and spend a, a stage or an internship at a Michelin-starred restaurant. But then what you have, and you certainly see this in the UK where you have what's now called modern British cooking, which, you know, 20 years ago was an oxymoron that didn't exist. Mm. You know, 20, 25, 30 years ago in the UK, all fine dining was either French, like the Rue Brothers at Le Gavroche or the Waterside Inn, or Jean-Pierre Kaufman at Les Tonclairs, or uh, Giorgio Locatelli at Locanda Locatelli. It was all, or, or Indian food, it was, it was, there was never real, I mean, British food was basically uh, overcooked meats and vegetables, uh, you know, in a, in a, or, or pub food, you know. Uh, uh, so there really was no modern British cooking. And then you had chefs like all of a sudden, who were, of course, it started with Gordon Ramsay and Marco Pierre White. And then you had chefs like Jason Atherton or Ali Dabus uh, coming up who were really, uh, or Nathan Outlaw, who were really these kind of, they were, they were British trained, British born, British bred, British trained, often having worked in France or elsewhere to learn some technique and using local ingredients. So I think that that model that's happened in Spain, that's happened in uh, certainly Italy, certainly Scandinavia, um, when you have countries that are uh, have cooking techniques, I mean, have cooking traditions like Southern Europe. Um, it, that's, of course, uh, a very interesting take on things. And if you talk to Italian chefs, you know, the Italian chefs, they, 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 they'll they say, uh, you know, sometimes the Michelin-starred restaurants don't have 
things you'd recognize as Italian food in the menu. And if you ask Italian chefs why, they'll say, well, I don't want to cook what my mom cooked or my grandma cooked. I want to do my own thing. So I think over the years, there's really been an evolution. People still look, to, you know, it's a long answer to your question, yeah, but people, I still think chefs still, still look to France for many things, for understanding of the product, understanding of technique. Uh, but they, I think, have taken that and used it and developed their own skills, their own products, and their own, I think, their own signatures in what they do. Wow, amazing. So interesting. Could ask so much more on that. Uh, but just <clears throat> an, an, an offshoot as well. Can you, if you had to name one meal, can you think of the best meal you ever had? <laughs> That's extremely difficult, um, be only because I've had so many. I've been fortunate to have, I'd, in my calculation, over 1,500 meals in, in Michelin-starred restaurants wow. around the world. Um, I think the probably the most uh, remarkable meals that I've had, I mean, I've had incredible meals everywhere, but I think some of the most astounding ones have been in Japan, just because the Japanese reverence for uh using incredibly fresh ingredients and and the, the japanese are really into not only just the taste but also the texture and temperature so i mean when you're eating i had a chance to eat with uh, he's retired now but jiro mm. uh, it, the famous three michelin star sushi restaurant that was in a a, a, met, a metro station or you know a subway station with eight places so very famous and when you're eating you you i'll never forget when you're eating jiro sushi it's, it's, it's all about the rice. It's like the fish is important, of course, what's on it, but the, the temperature of the rice and the, and, the, and the amount of vinegar on the rice and the temperature, you have to eat it right out of his hand. So mm. you literally, when he hands it to you, you really, you're expected to eat it right away because it's that temperature coming out of his hand. So I think there's a lot of things that I found in Japan or, or eating fish literally that was taken right out of the aquarium and cut right in front of you. I, I had some squid once that literally the, the, the squid, I think it was right out, you know, plucked him right out of the aquarium and chopped wow. it up. And yeah, so I think that was it. But I mean, um, and I think that that's, I think if people who have gone to Japan will say that the, the, the Japanese have an approach to food, no matter what it is, to, it's, I think on, on a different level than most other countries. It's fascinating. Um, so on Michelin, uh, I'm in marketing and uh, can you tell me about the Michelin Guide uh, how it was started and what the original goal was and maybe touch on uh you know there's been recent talk of maybe there'll be a michelin star restaurant in dubai and what that would take sure um uh, sure I, i'm happy to i mean um you know michelin guide was started in 1900 by the michelin brothers who in clermont ferrand in central france um they had a few years before they had they had invented really the inflatable uh, automobile tire. Um, and this is back when there were very few, there was only about 4,000 automobiles in all of France. And, uh, you know, people were basically building them in their, in their garage and there were very few roads, no gas stations, no garages. Um, and the Michelin brothers, that's, you really see what a, what a true visionary is. They believed, they understood that if they're going to sell tires, people have to drive. Mm -hmm. But if people, if there are no roads, if people don't know where to go, they don't know where to stay. They don't know where to buy gasoline. There's no gas stations. Where do you buy gas? Where do you get your car fixed? So none of these things were known. So the Michelin guide really started out as a guide to encourage people to drive. So it told them where to find a road. If you wanted to go from Paris to, for example, Orléans, which is about a 45 minute drive now. Back then it was, you know, it was a two, two day drive. Um, and it would tell you, you know, if you have to buy gas, you can buy it at this pharmacy. It was filled in pharmacies. Uh, and if you have to get a, a, your car breaks down, this is where you can get it fixed. And, and if you need a place to sleep, here's a hotel. And if you want to have dinner or a meal, this is where you can have a meal. 
And over, over the next couple of decades, the people who were using the Michelin Guide realized that the, the best advice was given for the hotels and the restaurants, especially the restaurants. So by the 19, late 1920s, uh, at the demand of their, 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 their uh, customers, their, their, their clients, they developed this system of giving stars. So um, most restaurants have, um, uh, are just being, just being in the Michelin Guide, the selection is a sign of being a, a particularly good restaurant. But for the really the, the top 15%, if you will, they gave stars, one, two, or three Michelin stars. And the third Michelin star, three Michelin stars being really, well, they say that uh, one Michelin star is worth a stop. Two Michelin stars is worth a detour, wow. and three Michelin stars is worth the voyage. So a three Michelin star restaurant is in and of itself a destination. It's a pilgrimage. It's a gastronomic pilgrimage to somewhere that you go simply for the gastronomic experience. And as Michelin develops, this was 120 years ago when they started. So over the years, as Michelin Guide has developed now into a presence in 26 countries, um, it has become... I think uh, really the kind of the, in many ways, the barometer or the, it's a, it's, 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 it's a mirror. It reflects what's going on. The Michelin guide does not, their job is not to tell people what they to do or what, to, what they think is push this or this trend is really to reflect on what's going on. And they do that with a unique uh, system, which is the Michelin inspectors. Mm. Now a Michelin inspector is a, is a food expert. Most of them have worked um, in the restaurant business, um, often in the kitchen. Um, they have to have especially well-defined, well-developed palates. They have to, you know, I mean, your ability to taste things, it's like people in the, in the, in the, in the for example, in the cognac business, they're called noses because they have great olfactory capacities where our inspectors, the, the Michelin inspectors need to have the right number of taste buds in the right place on their tongue so they can taste things. Um, they are anonymous when they go into restaurants. So the restaurateurs don't know that when they're there and they always pay their bills. So this unique, and I, to my knowledge that the Michelin is the only one who has full-time salaried anonymous inspectors mm. who are food experts and paid their bills. So, and they, and they go back several times to the restaurant. So to have these, you know, it's, it's an incredibly expensive operation. Mm. Um, but it's, you know, and I think that when, from a marketing point of view, and I did work in the tire business with, with Michelin as well before I joined the guides. And I think that the, the belief is that when you, no one really enjoys buying new tires for their car. So I think the idea was that when you, when you create a, an experience uh, around the Michelin brand. And you only probably replace your car tires maybe two or three times, once every two or three, four, maybe five years. So you're really out of touch with the brand. So the ability to create a experience with the Michelin brand in a qualitative and enjoyable environment kind of subliminally uh, has an impact when you go to buy tires, you say, oh, Michelin, Michelin restaurants, Michelin quality, uh, I think I'll buy Michelin tires. So anyway, that's at least I think what's thought of as the group. Um, and it's been very successful and I have to say, um, there's to the, today, to my knowledge, um, you know, there's things like 50 best, but that's not the same. You know, yeah. That's nothing has nothing to do. That's more of a beauty contest than anything else. And there have been other guides, but no one I think has been able to do what the Michelin guide has done. And um, it certainly was a great experience for me. And it also enabled me to meet my boss, my current boss, Jose Silva. I, I saw him in action yeah. when he was working for, for, with, for the, with the Four Seasons and was really able, he was transformative in his ability to take his magic wand and turn the, the food and beverage operations and everywhere he went uh, into amazing Michelin-starred uh, uh, restaurants. And I had the privilege and honor to award stars to the chefs that he brought on board. So when he offered me the opportunity to come to Dubai, I, I, I leapt at it. It sounds like it's only a matter of time before uh, you, Michael, and Jose have, have uh, Michelin star restaurants in the Jumeirah group. 
<laughs> well, that that you know, it's funny. I came here as when I was st still head of the guide. I came here in 2016, and I gave a, a talk at the Global Restaurant Investment Forum, and <clears throat> to just describe how the Michelin Guide worked. And one of the questions I was asked was, "When is when is Dubai going to get the Michelin Guide?" Because obviously, there are many places like South Africa, like Australia, uh, like Moscow, uh, that have or in many cities in the United States. Uh, in other countries where the Michelin Guide simply isn't present. So the Michelin Guide has no activity. So the Michelin Guide, they're not in India. Uh, they're not in, other than Sao Paulo and Rio in Brazil, they're not in South America. Um, and the reason is that um, when I was at the guide, I personally was uh, oversaw the development of 10 new destinations, whether it was Taipei or Bangkok or Singapore or Washington, D.C. So uh, obviously it takes a lot of time and effort, you know, in, in terms of hiring inspectors and paying for their trips and everything. So it's an expensive proposition. So on when I left the guide, there was definitely Dubai is on the to-do list. So I think that there is an eventually, and certainly I think the quality of restaurants here will merit the presence of the Michelin Guide, but um, you know it will it'll be probably it's only a matter of time, as I said back then, before the Michelin Guide comes here. But certainly, I think there's no question that there's enough uh, great restaurant, great eating here for the Michelin Guide to justify the presence of the Michelin Guide. Amazing, interesting. Moving on to another kind of marketing-related question. So Michelin is based on taking a special journey, and of course, um, not only. Jumeirah Group, but of course, COVID has had an impact on journeys, but we've talked about experiences. Another thing that attracts people to experiences is social media and Instagram. And of yes. course, now everyone's a food critic. Everyone's yeah. a food critic on Instagram. Is that a good or a bad thing? Uh, th that's a difficult question to answer <laughs> because uh, the problem is now that um, it, it is important now for restaurants to be Instagrammable. There's no question about that. Mm. Uh, if your lighting is not good, uh, it's going to be a problem because you won't get the Instagrammers out there. And that's very, very important. Um, and now you get to the point where you, you will have uh, uh, influencers, as like they call themselves, giving, <laughs> um, you know, in real time critiques of food so it's uh, i think it's 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 i think it's up the pressure on on kitchens and chefs to a certain degree but uh it it, it is uh, it is what it is as they say and I, now I, it's not going to go away so i think it's important to um stay focused on making sure as i when i was at the michelin guide i used to have <clears throat> chefs and restaurants used to ask me you know what what do i what can i do to get a, a michelin star and i would say look you as a as a as a, a business person, as a chef, don't worry about the Michelin stars. Worry about, uh, worry about a couple of things. One of the things you should worry about is what am I? You have we have to understand a few things. What do my customers want to eat? What price point do they want to pay? And what kind of environment or ambiance do they want to be in? Mm. And if you understand that, who is my customer? What does he or she want to eat? How much do they want to pay? And what kind of environment? What kind of in what, what kind of experience they want. And if you understand that and you deliver it, you will be a successful restaurant. Yeah. And that's because, I mean, restaurants are businesses after, you know, they have, you know, they have suppliers, they have employees uh, and, 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 and restaurant owners have families. I mean, you have to make it a viable ongoing concern. Yeah. And if you do that well, the Michelin Guide will discover you. So first of all, understand what you, what it takes to make the restaurant successful. And then I think the next thing is that in terms of marketing, in terms of getting the word out there, then that's where the Instagram and the food critics come into, into play. So but I think that 
you're better off having a, a restaurant that appeals to your customer base and knows what they want, knows what they want to eat, than designing your food for the Michelin Guide or for Instagram, for example. Because at the end of the day, if your food photographs well, but it doesn't taste good, you'll get a, you might get a quick a quick pop in terms of, of customers coming in or clients coming in because the food looks looks great but if it doesn't taste good that will go that'll die down very quickly yeah so for the palate rather than for the gram <laughs> ideally both i mean you, you can do both you can you can have food that tastes great and looks great as well i mean the visuals are important there's no yeah. question about that okay thank you so finally uh the weather has improved we're all eating ice we're all going back yeah. as much as possible yeah. Uh, but it's also entering the sort of festive period and New Year's period. Um, yeah. What What do people? What did Jumeirah Group have on offer? What should we be looking out for planning our our festive events? Well, um, for the time being, you know, we're, we've opened up um, many, if not all, of our hotels on the beach now. Um, of course, you can now you can sit outside at Sal, at Rockfish, at Tortuga, uh, at uh, um, uh, the uh, our our, yeah. our Shimmer, sorry, of course, just opened up last night. Um, we also have uh, uh, our, um, our our beach bars are open, are fantastic. Uh, Somersault, uh, our beach club, is is also great. Um, Kaito, uh, you can eat outside. Um, so we're uh, really uh, as as obviously the, the the weather gets better and people are, are able to eat outside. We're definitely opening that up, and we're we're very thrilled with that, and we're going to continue to do so. So I think. Uh, Certainly, uh, within the next couple of weeks, all, all, not all, perhaps not all, but most of our uh, establishments are all are open, and the ones I just mentioned are welcoming guests with open arms. Amazing. Well, thank you. Uh, you've whetted my appetite definitely. Uh, so, thank you for sharing all that this morning, uh, Michael. Pleasure, and hopefully uh, catch up again soon. Good. Well, I look forward to welcoming you to one of our restaurants. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for another episode of Dubai Works. Thank you so much for listening, and please leave a review on the podcast platform that you're listening to. It really helps with organic searches. Also, if you'd like to appear on Dubai Works or know someone who has an inspiring business story in Dubai, please do get in touch on any of the smashy social platforms.